This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings, listeners. I'm Ezie Pearson, Features Editor of BBC Sky at Night magazine. On today's episode of Radio Astronomy, I'm talking to Dermot Gethings. 50 years ago, Dermot, along with students from 79 other countries, was invited by NASA to witness the launch of the Apollo 17 moon mission and get a look behind the scenes at all aspects of the space mission as it was going on, as part of what was known as the International Youth Science Tour. So, Dermot, that sounds like an absolutely incredible opportunity. So can you tell me a bit more about exactly what the International Youth Science Tour was and how you came to be chosen? Uh, Hi, Ezzy. Yes, uh, this was a groundbreaking venture of uh, NASA and the US State Department in 1972. Apollo 17 was the last mission to the moon in the Apollo program. And NASA and the US State Department and the United Nations wanted to do something very special to mark that final moon landing. And so, as you say, uh, they decided to take one science student who was also very keen on spaceflight and astronomy uh, from each United Nations country, as they were at the time, and bring them together, uh, paid for by US industries and private sector on this uh, tour as VIP guests for a whirlwind three-week tour of NASA facilities. Um, In the 1960s, as I always say to people, I was a a child of of the the golden age of of space (laughs) flight, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and I was passionately keen on that, uh, as many uh, young lads were in in the day. I was also a keen amateur astronomer from the age of about 10. And uh, throughout my five years as then secondary school, up to 1972, uh, I formed, along with some friends, uh, the Astronomy Club, and I I ran that for my five years there. And uh, part of that, that I always used to really like uh, giving giving talks and presentations, Uh, and I got asked to give presentations on Apollo and also astronomy as well to other local schools, primary schools, mainly. And, And so I did that. And uh, through the local media, 
the local press, uh, the uh, United States Embassy in London uh, heard about me, the cultural office, and they contacted me in October 1972 uh, to say that NASA is planning this venture. Um, can you give us a call if you're interested? Of course, yes. Uh, <laughs> and they explained that they would like me to go down to the US Embassy for an interview, uh, which I did, and also submit uh, some of the uh, uh, essays I'd written on the benefits of of, of space flight, the mm. benefits of the space program. Um, so I went down uh, October 72 and uh, had a two and a half hour long interview with three people. Um, they explained that there were 16 other students from the around, around the UK uh, that were uh, candidates for, uh, for this. And um, I answered 20 or so questions on uh, astronomy and space in general uh, and the Apollo missions, and I got them all correct. So I, I came back home. I came <laughs> back home, uh, heard nothing for a couple of weeks, thinking I might get a letter, a second class letter, saying uh, we regret to say. Uh, but a couple of weeks later, I did get a second class letter. But it said, congratulations, you've been chosen to represent the people of the United Kingdom for the Apollo 17 moon mission. Uh, so this was a dream come true. I can imagine. So you were one of uh, 80 students who were chosen. What was uh, what were the other representatives like? Okay, they, were, they were from uh, all parts of the world. Uh, the, the other students... They were, aged between uh, 16 and, and, and uh, 18, were from all kinds of backgrounds. Some were from very wealthy backgrounds. Some were from uh, pretty ordinary working class backgrounds like myself. Some were what uh, NASA referred to at the time on our tour as, as children of the soil from very, very poor backgrounds, uh, mm. the African content, uh, uh, continent and so forth. And um, there were, NASA and the State Department ensured that there were few, if not no, uh, language uh, barriers because they had ex excellent interpreters. Uh, the three main mm. languages spoken were uh, English, uh, French, and Spanish. And the interpreters uh, ensured that we could all communicate well together and get to know one another, which we did very quickly and and get on. I think it, I, I guess it's a bit like uh, our international scientific consortiums of today. Uh, on, uh, yeah, I can draw parallels to that, where no matter what the politics or religious views are of anywhere in the world, it, it uh, people transcend that and, and work together uh, for a common purpose. And. I know you began your your trip to the US uh, a couple of days before the launch, but I think certainly for me, the, the part that I'm most jealous of, I must say, um, was the fact that you got to watch, watch the actual launch of Apollo 17. So it just passed midnight on the morning of the 7th. Uh, can you take us back to that day? Um, in 1972 and tell us a bit about what that was like. Uh, I, I can take you back. Well, first of all, uh, very early morning on the day of launch <laughs> because it should have been the 6th 
of, mm. uh, of December. And it was going to be the first ever time that they'd launched uh, Men Into Space at night time. So a spectacular nighttime launch was, uh, was on the cards. But uh, uh, I, along with the other students and NASA officials, uh, stayed at a, a hotel in, in near Orlando in Florida. We had to be up very early in the morning. Uh, because we were being taken over to Kennedy Space Center after breakfast. And I, I recall uh, stepping out of my, my hotel room, which was a, a, stepped onto a balcony to, to admire the, the palm trees and the swimming pool and so forth. Uh, I've never been to the States before, I've never been to Florida. And as I stepped out of my room, I, I actually bumped into this very tall, large gentleman with his his family and uh, actually he stood on the end edge of his foot and I looked up to apologize to him and he looked down at me and smiled and uh, I recognized him straight away it was my hero it was Neil Armstrong my goodness and you just ran into him outside of your hotel <laughs> yeah, room yeah and uh, he, wow. he he was there uh, to 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 uh, actually join us for the launch uh not travel with us directly, but be present with us at the launch. And uh, we had a, a formal meeting with him uh, the following day. But certainly this was day of launch. And uh, we walked down together to, to his car and, and, and his, his wife grabbed my camera and, and took a photograph of Neil and I shaking hands together. And we had a conversation for a few moments, uh, a few minutes, and uh, it, it, was, it was a wonderful experience to meet a lifelong hero mm, uh, I can but, imagine. Um, but getting to the launch we we, we had a uh, a behind the scenes uh, very very privileged view of uh of kennedy space center i know there are tours these days that take you to many places but we were allowed uh to be taken into into the vehicle assembly building and in there the saturn V rocket was fully assembled in the high bay for the skylab space station mission which was being launched the following month and so we had uh, we were able to stand at the base of this thing and look up the 365 feet to the, the top of this uh, fantastic uh, uh, Saturn V live moon rocket um, mm. and uh, but we, we were we were taken out to some of the the launch pads uh, from the Mercury and Gemini era and uh, by evening, uh, of course, December, uh, darkness fell very, very early. Uh, we, we, we had uh, dinner and then we were taken out to the, uh, the, one of the VIP stands adjacent to the vehicle assembly building, which was to our right. And the launch uh, should have uh, taken place at 9.53 p.m. And the, uh, the showers began to come down on us. Uh, there was lightning in the distance. Uh, mm. We were fearful the launch might be scrubbed. Mm. And, uh, but then they, they, they were going ahead. Things were running very smoothly. And they turned out all of the uh, spotlights at Kennedy Space Center. So it was, it was in pitch darkness. Uh, and uh, they turned out the, uh, 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 the, searchlights that were bathing the rocket so it really was quite quite dark and uh, 
when the countdown got to 30 seconds, a critical point uh, where the computers on board decide whether to go or no go, uh, the countdown stopped. There was a, a hold. That hold lasted mm. for a couple of hours because uh, sensors had, had told them that uh, one of the third stage tanks hadn't pressurized correctly. Uh, and they managed to override that remotely. But finally, at, uh, at 12.33 on the morning of 7th, uh, the, uh, the final countdown got underway and uh, the launch was... I've got to use the word awesome, although it's it's a very, very overly used word these days. Everything <laughs> seems to be awesome. It's, uh, but in the true sense of the word, it was because we I had a an eight millimeter cine camera, a movie camera with me so I could I could I could uh, uh, film this and when the countdown reached about nine seconds, these huge orange flames erupted from the base of the rocket, which was three miles away. That's that's the nearest you're allowed to be uh, to the Saturn V because it had the explosive force of a small atomic bomb. And uh, the, the flames and steam shot out from the flame trenches miles to either side. And then slowly, inexorably, the, the Saturn V began to uh, clear uh, past the tower. And it was silence up to that time because the sound waves hadn't travelled the three miles. And then they hit us. And boy, <laughs> did, they, did they hit us. It wasn't just the sound waves. It was the pressure pulse from the engines. They hit you hard in the, tre- in the chest. And the ground begins to shake. The stands around us, we were all stood up, of course, at this time, and everything was rattling and shaking violently. And I can remember, you, you never forget anything like that. It's not just a visual thing. You actually experience it and feel it. The sound of the engines was a very uh, uh, staccato-like, snapping, crackling sound that each pressure pulse from the engines made these snaps and crackles crackle against and tingle against the skin on your, on your face. So it was really, it was, it was really, you know, something that your body experienced and rattled you to your core. Uh, <laughs> I, I can remember that the noise was, was almost distressing. It, it, it was that loud and it lasted mm-hmm. for a couple of minutes as the vehicle uh, pitched over and pointed uh, downrange over the uh, Atlantic Ocean. And uh, when things quietened down, the, the uh, NASA piped the voices of, of the astronauts' exchanges with, with Mission Control Houston, who, who had now taken over the mission once the uh, vehicle had cleared the tower. And you could hear the exchanges. You could hear uh, CERN and Schmidt and Evans on board the uh, 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 Apollo 17, uh, which appeared like a star then, um, arcing out over the Atlantic Ocean. And the exchanges between uh, Mission Control Houston and uh, and we saw the staging, uh, the, the separation of the first stage and the ignition of the, the second stage, and uh, a huge bright flash in the sky. But I can remember the... Uh, 
the voice of, of launch control going back uh, just a few minutes. As the Saturn cleared the tower, he said, it's like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center. It was literally like being stood in the middle of the desert on a bright summer's day. <laughs> it was that luminous, incredibly bright. Um, mm. So that was the launch. And I think we, we got back to the hotel around four o'clock in the morning and we had to oh. be up a couple of hours later to go on to our uh, our next place on the tour. That sounds like an absolutely incredible experience as well. The fact that it was a night launch and you got that sort of to really appreciate how bright it was. Um, but because, of course, as you said, this was the only Apollo mission that had a hold on it yeah. um, at 30 seconds. And because now today or every time that you see uh, all launches are live streamed with commentary over the top, yeah. did you know what was happening when that hold was going on or were you all just sitting there waiting for it to go? Uh, no, the, the public affairs officer at Kennedy Space Centre was continually commentating on uh, on developments. Uh, and so we were... Uh, we were kept up to speed of, of, of what was, was happening. I mean, there were silences in, in between while the ground crews figured things out. There were more than 400 technicians in, in the firing room, which was adjacent to the uh, vehicle assembly building. Of course, these days, it was probably something like a dozen or two people in launch control, uh, I guess, but uh, in those days, it was over 400 in, in analog technology uh, days. And uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was such an enormous relief when they resumed the count after midnight uh, mm. because yeah, we we, we were going to go, uh, and this was an historic event uh, which would have been well tragic to miss if if they had mm. to scrub to, till another day and we couldn't be around. Mm. And it it was particularly historic this one because it was the last Apollo mission and you all knew that whilst you were there. Did that make being at the launch particularly poignant in any way? It, it did, Ezzy. It, it, it made it... We, we knew, although we were kind of 16, 17 years of age, we, we knew exactly that this was a special point in history, a special moment in history, and that Apollo was was paving the way for, for future greatness in space. Uh, we knew that uh, that Skylab was being launched, America's first space station was being launched the following month, and uh, that the the space shuttle was in was in its early stages of development, and we did get a chance to to see a mock up mock up of that uh, later on in the tour. Uh, but yes, we we were uh, aware of the historic significance of that, and of course uh, the. The Goodwill Moon Rock as well, which uh, which appeared later in the tour. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the Goodwill Moon Rock, um, one of the other big highlights of your tour was on the thirteenth of December, yeah, um, which was the day that uh, Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt were on the surface conducting their third and final extravehicular activity (EVA), um, and they actually, I believe spoke to you directly from the surface. Can you tell me more about what that, that day was like? Yeah, sure. I mean, we'd spent uh, three days at, uh, at Mission Control in Houston and we had a, 
a fantastic uh, background uh, behind the scenes view uh, of astronaut training and so forth. And we were on that particular day in question, uh, we were situated uh, at the back of the mission control room. We had to all be very, very quiet because it, it isn't a noisy place in, in, in mission control. Uh, we had to be very quiet. And we could see uh, on the big screen uh, at the front of, of mission control the astronauts uh, walking on the surface of the moon close to the lunar module. Directly in front of me, and I was in the back left-hand corner of mission control, was Ed Fendel. Ed Fendel was one of the mission controllers who actually controlled the camera, the live television camera, which was mounted on the front of the uh, lunar roving vehicle, mm. for which they traversed uh, some uh, frightening distances around the lunar surface. Uh, but but um, you, you could you could see him move his controls uh on his console, and then a second or so later, allowing for the speed of light uh, delay, the uh, the camera then moved uh, on the lunar surface. But Cernan and Schmidt, um, they mentioned that a, a group of students from all over the world was gathered in mission control that night, and it was quite late at night at that time. And... Uh, they picked up a piece of rock, an ordinary piece of rock, and uh, Commander Cernan spoke to our group directly and said, uh, Jack has picked up a piece of rock, uh, a virtually ordinary rock, but composed of many fragments um, uh, that's been on the lunar surface for billions of years, and... Uh, and has coalesced and uh, lived in harmony with its own components for for eons, and that this rock would be uh, given to each member of uh, of the group of the tour, and uh, that they would present it uh, to their nations, uh, to the peoples of their country with a message of goodwill from Apollo 17 and, uh, and peace and hopes for the future. And um, Jack Schmidt uh, then added a few words that uh, echoing Commander Cernan's words. And uh, we were to be custodians of what's to be called the goodwill moon rock or friendship rock. Uh, there were there were two of these. The Apollo Eleven crew uh, brought back a, a friendship rock. This was the Apollo Seventeen Goodwill Moon Rock, and I was to be custodian of that. Mm, that that's a lovely thing. I think that they did on that one, sort of spreading, the, the, showing that this this mission was for the entire world and not just Abs- for the US. Absolutely. I, yeah, that's that's lovely and. You did. Those, I think, are probably the the, the biggest highlights from the mission, uh, from your, your time in the US. But you did a whole range of things on your trip. Were there anything else that particularly stood out in your mind? Oh, yeah. we This whirlwind, whirlwind tour lasting some three weeks, uh, we were flying to different NASA facilities or other scientific facilities on average every other day. Uh, 
uh, we we went to the uh, atomic energy facility at Oak Ridge uh, in Tennessee, which uh, was very very interesting. Uh, but then we we getting back to kind of Apollo, we we uh, spent a day at the uh, George C. Marshall Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and some of the um, American German rocket scientists. Uh, some of them of whom were part of, had been part of Werner von Braun's team, who, as you know, de- developed much of American uh, rocketry. Uh, they were there to uh, give us a guided tour of all the the test sand, stands and so forth. And we also had a, a really good look at the uh, the neutral buoyancy tank, which was then the the biggest sort of training t- tank in the world. And we looked through the portholes there uh, of the tank. And we saw inside a full-size mock-up of the Skylab space station and some of the astronauts actually suited up with divers practicing an EVA on the Apollo telescope mount, which was, of course, used for uh, uh, for solar observations. It made quite a, a mm-hmm. valuable contribution to, to solar observations in the early 70s. But uh, another highlight was to, to go to the famous uh, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in, in Pasadena, California, and uh, have a chance to sit in the mission control where they were monitoring uh, the Pioneer probes, which are well on the way to the outer edges of, of the solar system. Um, so we had some fantastic experiences there. I, th- I think another little highlight, uh, which was uh, rather cheeky, but we, 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 we did a tour of... of North American Rockwellers plant in Downey, California. They were the people that built the uh, Apollo command modules, amongst other things. And uh, they had their Casper, the Apollo 16 command module, uh, which had been to the moon a few uh, few months earlier. And it was on its test stand in the factory uh, uh, for post-flight analysis. And... Uh, of course, we were VIP guests and we, we split up into small groups to tour this huge facility. And, uh, and I asked the official uh, very cheekily um, if he would allow me to just climb inside the centre seat of the command module, which staggeringly <laughs> he allowed me to do so as long as I didn't touch anything. So I, I was able to climb up little steps and climb through the hatch into the the centre seat, which is more like a, a hammock, really, uh, on, on a collapsible frame, uh, to where Ken Mattingly, astronaut Ken Mattingly, would have, would have sat during the, the flight of Apollo 16 with uh, Charlie Duke and uh, John Young uh, and, and take a tiny piece of the heat shield as well, which I still have. <laughs> but, um, but uh, I, I mean, you would never be allowed to do that, understandably, quite rightly so, these days, uh, because uh, these artifacts are quite rightly so uh, valuable mm-hmm. uh, museum pieces. I know the Smithsonian in Washington, in particular, do a lot of restoration and take great care of of, of uh, these items. You already mentioned there that you met Neil Armstrong. Yeah. Were there any other notable figures that you met during your time? Yeah, um, whilst in Mission Control, uh, Admiral Alan Shepard met us. 
and he mm. he took us to the auditorium and uh, gave us a presentation on the future of NASA. Alan Shepard, of course, being the the first US astronaut. Yes, indeed, he was as he and also commander of Apollo fourteen. Uh, mm-hmm. He uh, he led the mission to the highlands of Fra Mauro, uh, where Apollo thirteen should have landed, had it not been for the uh, the, the near fatal explosion on board. And Alan Shepard, uh, he he was wonderful and. Uh, he, he led us down to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory, now known as the Planetary Materials Laboratory. But there they had these special uh, containers with the uh, yet unstudied uh, moon rocks from the previous Apollo missions, which we were allowed to look at very, very close up. And uh, so, so that was an incredible experience. But... There were other scientific figures, such as uh, Harold P. Klein, who had worked with people like Carl Sagan on uh, the the Viking uh, uh, missions, uh, in, in particular uh, life detection experiments on board Viking. And uh, over at the University of Berkeley in Cal- California, we, we had a tour of the, the Bevatron particle accelerator there. And... Our host for the day was Dr. Uh, Luis Alvarez, uh, who is a uh, Nobel Prize laureate. And he, he worked on the bubble chamber and uh, the uh, discovery of the, the positron, I believe. Uh, but he had also worked uh, with Oppenheimer, on the, got conscripted for that, with Oppenheimer on the, uh, the Manhattan Project as well. So he was... He was a very distinguished uh, scientist uh, you know, to meet. Um, but um, I, I think the final, the final sort of person on the tour that of, at the time maybe didn't have, well, quite have the fame, but later he would, was the, the, the tour finally ended on the 19th of December at the United Nations mission uh, in New York. And following a tour of the UN, we had a, a lunch with the United States ambassador to the United Nations, and his name was George H.W. Bush, uh, <laughs> l- later to become uh, president of the United States. Um, and so uh, we had lunch with him and uh, th- three of us, one from Spanish, uh, French and English-speaking nations, uh, gave a thank you speech to, to NASA, the State Department, and, and the people of the United States for their kindness and courtesy uh, and privilege, fantastic privileges given to us by NASA, uh, in particular uh, during that tour. And uh, it was closed by uh, Mr. Bush. <laughs> and did you, because there were a lot of people there from around the world reporting, was there anybody from the UK that you met whilst you were at? out there on your trip? Uh, yeah, I, 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 a couple of people in Houston, um, uh, James Burke, who was mm-hmm. the uh, BBC uh, correspondent. Uh, James Burke uh, used to present uh, Tomorrow's World back in, in the 1960s. And uh, he, along with uh, Sir Patrick Moore, um, covered for the BBC just about all of the Apollo missions. Uh, long hours of broadcasting day and night. Uh, Sir Patrick I think, was having a rest period. It was night time and he was having a break. But I did spend 
quite a bit of time with uh, with James Burke and, and kind of became pen pals with him for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. And also another uh, sort of great BBC correspondent from the day, Reginald Turnhill. He, he was there with his wife and he had just written a, a, a book on, on space flight, an observer's book. We spent time with, with him. And whilst you were looking behind the scenes, did you actually manage to get to see any of the 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 lunar material that had been brought back from the the previous Apollo missions? Uh, yes, at the lunar receiving laboratory, as it was known then, um, these days it's called the planetary materials laboratory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were led down there, and they had a room, uh, and they'd, they'd set it out, and the as the Americans call it, these. Uh, alloy caskets that had, had, were kept in uh, uh, in a vacuum or in a inert gas. Um, there were samples for, of rocks and soil from all of the previous missions. Uh, I, I, one particular one that they had separated was the 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 famous Genesis rock from Apollo fifteen, which is a very mm. white coloured, almost like pumice stone. Uh, we had to. Uh, had a really good close-up view of that. Uh, they had these um, uh, special uh, uh, chambers set up uh, with in a vacuum with 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 a, a glove that you could, you could put your hand in and, and touch a, a piece of moon rock, uh, which I think they had as we were VIP guests. Just had that one set up to one side, just just to enable us to do that. Not everyone did. Uh, all 80 students didn't go places all together. The groups were were split into uh, very small groups and um, uh, to, to, to make it more manageable uh, So while other students did different things. Uh, so that was, that was very memorable um, to, to see these iconic samples so close up um and as i understand it probably well in the 90s percentage of of all the lunar materials have not yet been studied uh, as Mm. nasa had that foresight not to do destructive testing on them until uh the technologies improved over the decades so that was quite an interesting foresight by them so Globally, only a very, very tiny percentage of these rocks are, are under study. Yeah, and in fact, there was, I believe, um, earlier this year, there was a, a sample that they put into cold storage for 50 years, specifically to thaw out this year, um, to take advantage of, of modern techniques, which I thought was a very smart of them. There's been quite a lot of advancement in the last 50 years. Um but as you said, they are obviously quite careful with these these um, pieces of rock. Um, so I'm kind of curious how you managed to get yours, because obviously the crew came back just as you were finishing your trip. And presumably they didn't just, you know, hand you a piece of oh, rock no, no. out of the no. <laughs> um, module. So how, how did you eventually get your, your piece of Goodwill rock? OK, um, the... The uh, good will, will moon rock uh, sample uh, has a de- designated catalogue number with NASA, which is seven double zero one seven, and um, that was fragmented. Not not the entirety of 
of of that rock, but a portion of that rock was separated and fragmented down after the mission into uh, 80 uh, small pieces. And um, it was actually several several months later, seven months actually, seven months later that that I I got hold of it. And uh, I... I had to travel down to the uh, U.S. Embassy, Grosvenor Square, as it was then, in in London, uh, in uh, 12th of July, uh, 1973, and uh, went to the the, uh, Air Force Attaché's office. And there was the Air Force Attaché, along with uh, Brigadier General Jim McDivitt, who was former astronaut, uh, commander of uh, Gemini 4 with Ed, Ed White, the late Ed White, and uh, he was commander of Apollo 9. And uh, he was there uh, to travel with me uh, to Downing Street and uh, another chap from the cultural office there, Mr. Uh, Michael Pistor, uh, he he brought in the, the Goodwill Moon Rock, which was embedded in a glass ball on a hardwood plaque and uh, along with a small Union Jack which uh, had been taken to the lunar surface by Schmidt and Evans. Indeed, uh, all of the, the Goodwill Moon Rock uh, rocks that were presented throughout the world had a, a small flag uh, of their nation taken to the lunar surface. And uh, the plaque had a, a message of, of goodwill and peace from the then uh, President of the United States, uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, so I was briefed on the protocols of, uh, of being custodian uh, for this rock. And uh, we, that day we travelled uh, in, in, in a couple of cars to, uh, to 10 Downing Street, where we presented it uh, to the then Prime Minister, Mr Edward Heath, uh, along with um, Mr. Walter Annenberg, who was the, the United States ambassador to the United Kingdom then. Uh, so we, we, we presented that to, to Edward, Edward Heath. Uh, I gave a, a short speech to Mr. Heath, uh, uh, thanking, uh, thanking NASA, thanking to the people of the United States uh, for the privileges of handing over uh, this piece of rock for the people of the United Kingdom. And uh, so that was a very special day. And it, it, it subsequently went to the uh, Natural History Museum, uh, where it is still on display some 50 years later. Mm-hmm. And hopefully some of our listeners will be, be hearing this story and be inspired to go down and and, and visit it. Because... Um, it's I, I I've seen it myself down in the Natural History Museum um, before I, I I met you and talked to you and knew the story behind it. So that's absolutely brilliant to hear. Um, and so this is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17 this year. Um, how will you be spending that, those first few weeks in December um, commemorating the day? Well, I have a, a number of presentations to give uh, on this very subject. Uh, for the past couple of years, um, friends in uh, my own 
uh, Astronomy Society that I'm involved with, Preston and District Astronomical Society, and also the University of Central Lancashire, Jeremiah Horrocks Institute, amongst others, said, you know, you, you, you need to write a booklet on this. Uh, you need to give presentations because uh, this is an important piece of history uh, that you were involved in. Uh, and so I, I have some uh, presentations to give in uh, in December at uh, one or two other astronomical societies. Um, I'm also involved in a uh, with Liverpool Astronomical Society uh, on the uh, 10th of uh, uh, of December. They are uh, doing a, a special Apollo 17 50th anniversary event, a huge event uh, in in uh, Liverpool Library. A uh, couple of evenings prior to that, on the 7th of of December, which is the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 17. Uh, I'm giving uh, a couple of the late uh, talks at the uh, National Space Centre in Leicester, which I'm really looking forward to. Mm, so it certainly sounds like there's a lot going on. There is. Thank you very much, Dermot, for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. That was an absolutely fascinating story. Um, and I'm, I'm very glad that you got to be able to experience that and to share it with us. So thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure and uh, thank you for a great magazine as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.